Hello and welcome back to Control Up Delete. My guest today is Eric Zimmer. He is a behavior coach and author. He hosts the award-winning podcast, The One You Feed, which is one of my all-time favorite podcasts. It's based on an old parable about two wolves at battle within us. And it's had over 300 episodes, over 13 million downloads. The show features really incredible conversations with experts across many different topics, authors, psychotherapists, doctors, teachers, really fascinating people who know a lot about their field of study and how to create a life that has less suffering and more fulfillment and meaning. The conversations always go really deep and I always learn so much. And then I kind of followed Eric more and realized that he had a really interesting backstory himself. So I'm really excited to talk to him for this episode. His story involves finding a way to recover from addiction and build a life worth living for himself. And he's been featured in the media including a TEDx talk, the BBC and brain pickings. And I'm really excited just to talk to him about him today, even though I'm so used to listening to him interviewing other people all the time. I'm so grateful to Eric for coming on Control Alt Delete and I hope you enjoy our conversation. So I'm so thrilled to have Eric Zimmer on the podcast. I have to thank you, first of all, because your podcast single-handedly got me through the COVID pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I discovered it in the lockdown, the first lockdown in the UK. And on it, I listened, I binge listened to it in the bath, on walks. It was in my ears for so long. So I feel like I know you very well. So thank you. Oh, thank you. That is, uh, it's high praise coming from a, a fellow podcaster and writer and artist who I admire. So thank you. Oh, it's just such a great show. And I just felt so excited to have endless content of like the most amazing guests you pick so well, and it's an incredible theme. So it was very exciting that day to discover it. But what was interesting, even more interesting is you're such a great interviewer. And I was like, who is this Eric Zimmer? Like, I, you are so good at what you do. And then I went and watched your TED talk. And then I was like, oh my God, you've got the most fascinating backstory yourself, which is not always the case with interviewers, I think. <laughs> um, and so that sort of took me on another deep dive. But I thought in a nutshell, just for people that might not have come across your story, I know it's a long one and, and you've spoken about it in depth on other shows, but would you just be able to paint a picture of, you know, the journey you've been on and the work you've had to do? Sure. Yeah. I, like you said, it, th this is the sort of question you never know. Is this a 30 second answer or do we spend the next three hours? But I think the big strokes of it are, um, you know, at 24, I was uh, a homeless heroin addict. Um, I was uh, potentially going to go to jail for a long time. I weighed uh, 50 pounds less than I weigh today. Uh, I had hepatitis C. I was I was in bad shape would be <laughs> would be the summation of it. Right. And now um, 25 plus years later, I am, um, you know, thriving and, and living a good life and hosting a podcast that I love and doing coaching work and, and creating programs that matter. The intervening 25 years, obviously, there's there's a lot in there. There's been a lot of work on recovery, a lot of work on my own um, depression, you know, some of the reasons why I, I you know, I, that I think contributed to being an addict, a lot of uh, spiritual journeys, a lot of work on that. And, you know, a lot of the other normal stuff that make up a life, a career in the software business. I started and owned a solar energy company for a while. I raised a, a son and a stepson. I've had a bunch of dogs that I loved, you know, all, all the normal stuff in there too. It's such an interesting life. And 
maybe people would be shocked to hear that only because of the person you are now. And I feel like people come to you for so much wisdom and it's very inspiring, I think, to see someone go from A to B and how they do it. And I also really like that every time you talk about stuff, there's no quick fix. There's no, you're not like selling any solution. I feel like you're someone who's genuinely living each day. And before I move on, I was just wondering, like, is it hard for you to talk about that stuff? Does it feel like very much in the past or are you happy talking about it? I'm pretty happy talking about it. I mean, does it feel in the past? I mean, on one hand, that person feels like a different person in a lot of ways. You know, I told this, I was telling this story to a client of mine yesterday who's who's struggling with some some things. And I said, about a year and a half ago, my mom fell and broke her hip. And I started having to do a lot of things for her. And one of those was to go get her medicine. And it was only after about the fourth time I did it I realized like I am carrying high grade opiates in my hand here, things that at one point in life, I very likely would have robbed you to get. And now I'm transporting them to my mother. Not only am I able to do it, I haven't even thought of it until now. And to me, that that speaks to no quick fix you know, a lot of years of work, but that we really can transform some things in us that seem like, oh, I could never do that. Because if you'd told me that, I would have said, that's not possible. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe in my wildest dreams, I'll get to the point that I could do it for my mom, but boy, would it be hard, but it wasn't even hard. And so um, I think that that, so I say that to say this in one way, that person seems a long time ago. And yet, you know, the things that, that I learned at 24 that helped me to get sober are, are integral parts of who I am today. So, no, it's not hard to talk about. Um, you know, there might be some moments if we really dug into like a, you know, some particular moments in there, right? I'm just giving a broad story. If we, if we brought up some of those moments, that might get a little, you know, emotionally touch me more. But no, it's yeah. not hard. And, and I'm... Um, I'm happy to do it because I think that's when we, you know, the true overcoming of things in life is when we, when we overcome them and then we see how they not only strengthen us, but they can help others. At that point, it's, you know, to use a slightly old fashioned term like that, that's real redemption. Definitely. And I think that's why people connect so much with you and your work. But I only ask because having interviewed so many people for so long and some people write you know, really grueling and very honest and raw memoirs, for example, I find it really interesting sometimes where that, where that line is with this person might have written their story down, but I feel like there's like a social barrier of like that person might not want to talk about that particular thing on a podcast, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, it, it is interesting who wants to talk about what, you know, and, yeah. and you think if somebody wrote it down, well, you kind of opened it up for that being a, a topic of discussion, but some people's wounds are rawer than others, you know, um, yeah. you know, this, the, I, you know, I'm talking about 25 years ago. Now I didn't stay sober the last 25 years. I did after about eight years, um, start drinking and, uh, smoking pot again and ended up in, um, I ended up having to get completely sober again, but I never went back to the opiates. Mm. So interesting. I Before I ask you some of the, the wisdom I've got from you personally from the podcast, um, 
would you just be able to tell me where the parable of the two wolves, like where, where the, when the podcast started and when you decided you wanted, wanted to do it on that? Because it's such a great concept, but I'd love to know when you first heard it and why you wanted to do it around that. Well, I first heard it probably 25 plus years ago, early in recovery. I just heard it in some 12 step meeting, you know, somebody said it and it was, you know, it, it, it landed on me. I think everybody, when you hear it, you're like, oh yeah, it makes sense. But it landed on me very strongly because my bad wolf was really strong at that point. You know, I, 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 I joke, I wasn't feeding the bad wolf anymore. He was eating me at that juncture of my life, but it was a very clear you know, I saw very starkly in front of me, do these things and you've got a life that might be hopeful and have recovery and beauty or do these things and, you know, jails, institutions and death, as we often say. Mm-hmm. So it was really, you know, so I'd heard it and, you know, it's had bounced around my head on and off for all those years. The podcast started sort of as a whim. I had owned a solar energy company and due to changing political, uh, winds in Ohio, it was no longer viable. And so I was shutting it down and I thought, well, maybe I'll do a podcast about solar energy. Um, You know, maybe I'll shift the business to be more of a virtual thing. I'll do online trainings and a podcast. And then I just, my heart was kind of broken by solar. And I was like, I just don't want to do it right now. And then I just kind of, the idea just came to me in like, as I recall, just sort of a flash, like I could do a podcast and I could call it this and I could use this parable. And I could ask my best friend, Chris, to do the audio for it. So we'd spend more time together. And so as I recall it, that's sort of how it happened. Now, I I know memory is a notoriously unreliable thing. (laughs) So maybe I sat down and, you know, but I don't think I sat down with like, you know, let me come up with 15 different podcast ideas. I feel like it just sort of emerged somewhat fully formed. That's why I love yours so much, as you can tell that it's someone very fascinated in a subject and that the podcast genuinely is probably feeding into your life. You're not doing it. You know, it's before the kind of podcast world exploded as well. And I just, the authenticity of that really comes through and I love it. But one thing that I think you're so good at talking about, and it's really impacted me, is this idea of the actions. What's, I'm going to get the phrase wrong now, but the acting into right doing, not thinking into right action. I probably got it wrong. (laughs) Um, Sometimes we can't think our way into right action. We have to act our way into right thinking. Yes. And I think so many, you know, well-intentioned advice can come from, it's all about thinking. It's all about sitting with yourself and thinking it out and getting yourself into better thinking patterns. And I guess that's kind of fine, but it's really practical. A lot of your episodes around the action that you take. And it seems like that transformed your life as well. Totally. And, and that, that message is very, at least where I got sober in central Ohio in 1995. Right. So that message was pretty clear. It was all about what do you do? Mm-hmm. And I think it's pretty fundamental to anybody getting over addiction, but we can, we can then extrapolate that out to anybody who's trying to change behavior is that if you if you do what your thoughts are telling you do my thoughts in those days were telling me most of the time that you know i need drugs so i can't rely on that so i have to just sort of set a, a course of action and do my best to follow it and and I, I i often think about this idea that you know we all most anything we're doing in life is a strategy to feel better right we just all want to avoid pain 
and and be happy like that's the underlying thing underneath all of us and so everything is a strategy in order to do that right um so we want to feel better but feeling better is not uh, i the phrase i sometimes use is it we don't have a lever on our emotions i can't go in and just grab the the lever and move it from sad to happy thoughts I do have some ability to work with. So thoughts, there's a little bit more of a lever I can pull. I can notice a thought. I can say, okay, do I want to believe that? I don't want to believe that. I could try and distance myself. So there's a lever, but it's a slippery lever, <laughs> right? It, action is a, is a pretty reliable lever behavior, right? It's one that I can grab easier and I can pull easier. And then thoughts and emotions tend to come. Now, sometimes that's an oversimplification. Sometimes when I say you just, you know, just do it, you know, well, sometimes we have to be able to work with our thoughts and emotions skillfully enough to take action. So these things are all sort of related, but, but again, I think that, that action is often the easiest lever to pull and the most reliable one. Yeah, it really reminds me of something I worked out a while ago around writing because I have to, you know, meet my deadline sometimes when I'm not in the mood. And I find that if I just start writing, I've, I'm in the mood. Yes. I just can't feel in the mood and then write. And it's just a reverse on something that I felt was quite obvious, um, but I never knew it. And I feel like it, it rings true with a lot of stuff I've been reading recently around um, Jill Bolte-Taylor's she's got a new book out and there's something in there around how an emotion only lasts for 90 seconds. Mm. And so you can actually break the cycle, but unless you know that, how do you know? But I put my shoes, my running shoes by the door and like make things so much easier for me yeah. to go make that action. And I heard you on a podcast actually recently talking about the Spotify playlist that you have so that you just press the button and you know, it's mm -hmm. right there for you. So you're like setting yourself up for a better mood. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're talking about here is a, a principle I teach in my coaching, which is to separate decision from action, right? And so if I decide what I'm going to do ahead of time, then when the time comes, I can put all my energy into just doing it. Um, when we combine the two, we often get lost, at least if you have a mood system like mine, right? What will happen is if I'm like, well, what should I do now? What do I feel like doing mm -hmm. now? Well, that's, that doesn't usually turn out very well. So yeah, all these things, you know, putting the, the shoes by the door or a way of sort of separating decision from action. I've decided I'm going to run. I've decided that's important. And then I go about making it easier. Yes. Cause I'd first heard of the hungry, angry, lonely, tired from Julia Cameron. And maybe there's a connection there because she talks about giving up alcohol and yeah, kind of that whole backstory with her. And I was like, oh, that, that must come from maybe those similar meetings. And it's an amazing piece of advice that I'm like so grateful that people are talking about. Yeah. I I think Julie, I think she comes from um, a recovery background and it was interesting. I interviewed her not too long ago and um, just immediately struck up sort of a friendship like she's been you know like she's just been very kind and and um it's just really nice so i think we we come out of uh, similar waters so yeah i don't know where hungry angry lonely tired halt as an acronym originally comes from but it certainly was in the 12-step programs not it's not an actual part of them as in written into the actual well it might be into some of the supplemental literature but yeah 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 it's really it's very useful for everyone and 
it's interesting with her. I feel like she's so good on how creativity has sometimes been matched with addiction or with needing substances or enhancing you in some way in a positive way and like she just completely kind of smashes that to pieces and says no you can be creative and and amazing without that that stuff yeah and it is a transition though it's interesting i i just was doing an email exchange with a a fiction writer who's been on our show a couple times um and there's been a number of them so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna name the person but that that person's uh journey has included recovery recently and he was he just made a joke about how um you know for a long time he had a phrase don't trust any writer who doesn't drink and now you know it's so interesting you have to completely re-engineer that idea and it's so i i mean i went through that with music as a musician it was like the musicians i loved were the people who you know like keith richards right you know that's what i'm you know the ultimate junkie musician and then all of a sudden you you change that and you're like whoa i've got to reorient my whole creative process but also my beliefs about the creative process and my identifications and my maybe my heroes Yeah, so true. Because I the quote, write drunk, edit sober by Hemingway, I think I learned when I was like 15. <laughs> so it was, it was that, that ingrained. Yeah. So I had to definitely unpick that myself. Um, but I wondered if I could talk to you a little bit about your work and, and lifestyle, because I guess maybe I'm fascinated because I have a similar setup. But when a hobby or a side project or something you did for fun turns into your career, it's quite interesting and mm. it's quite an adjustment. And I just wondered, have you had to adjust the way you work or stave off any overwork or burnout or anything? Because when you love what you do, sometimes it can it can really take you on a bit of a ride and you don't know when to stop. <laughs> yeah, it, absolutely. It has been an adjustment period. So it's it's about... Boy, it might be coming up on three years now that I began to do this full time, which means for about four years, four and a half years, I did the podcast while I worked a job. My career was in software. Um, I wasn't a software developer, but I did everything all around creating software. And um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, had to learn a variety of things. Um you know, around, yeah, fencing off, like, you know, it, it maybe two years into being on my own. No, it's been a little bit more than that. Maybe a year, year and a half. I was like, you know what? I'm going to start taking weekends off. I had not taken a weekend off work in forever because I had a full-time job and a podcast and a coaching business. So there, there were no weekends off. And I was suddenly like, I'm going to start taking weekends off. And, you know, I'm going to start to limit limit the hours somewhat, you know, and then I think the, the secondary piece that's been challenging for me is that as soon as the pressures of making a living start to become tied into the work that you love, it's like keeping those things separate is really, can be really challenging, you know, for me, it, I really have to try and consciously separate and and consciously connect back with the reasons that i'm doing what i'm doing the parts of it that i love and not allow the 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 achievement oriented or the stress oriented or the financial oriented to sort of 
Because I think those things will just, they're sort of insatiable. They will just eat anything you feed them, you know? And so I have to really be careful and say, all right, I'm going to try and protect this. And a lot of it for me is intention. It's about remembering, why am I doing this? What matters to me about this? What do I love about this? And, and sort of consciously trying to reclaim some of that stuff from, um, you know, the very real need now, this is what supports me and it supports several other people, right? So it, we've got to, got to make it work. Yeah, I, I hear you on that. And I feel like this conversation around commercial gain and art, it's so interesting because they can actually work together really well and you can make money as a creative and it can be brilliant and the two worlds can mix and it can be this perfect balance of like, oh, I'm getting paid to do what I love and I'm not having to make any adjustments. Like I would have done this anyway and you're paying me. This is great. But I think the boundaries around that is so interesting and where your line is on this doesn't feel right. And um, sometimes that's like a gut feeling, isn't it? Sometimes. Yeah. Yep. It's a, yeah, totally. It's a gut feeling. And I think it's, um, it's also what I've noticed for me is it's, it's subtle, you know, it, it, it that it, the, the, desi- the, the part of making a living, um, slowly encroaches, you know, and it's for me, it, sometimes there are clear lines I have to draw, like, okay, we're not going to take that person as a sponsor, or I'm going to say no to this person as a coaching client. Cause I don't think I'm really the right fit for them. Or, um, you know, so sometimes there's very clear ways of staying in, t- in integrity, but again, for me, it's the more subtle. It's just that the, th- the best way I could say it maybe is that the, the, uh, the threads of worry start to weave themselves into the work itself. And that's what I look for is how do I, how can I pull the threads of worry or, you know, uh, or, or gain out a desire for gain out. And, and, you know, as much as I can keep this thing, um, pure isn't the right word. Cause I, I just don't think things are really pure or unpure, but, but you get the gist of what I'm trying to say. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's um it's an interesting one. And I'm sure people listening will relate, even if they don't necessarily have a podcast, but it it's it's across the board quite relevant, I think, of how you decide where that line is with keeping that integrity. I, I think it's all about integrity. And interestingly, I've just made a change on my show, which is it, you know, I'm not really accepting press releases or pitches around particular launches where I have to line up with a particular plug. Like I'm kind of going back to this is a conversational show and there might not be anything I'm plugging. (laughs) And actually, I think that the podcast landscape, like that might be a good thing um, where I'm adding something that doesn't need to always have a hook or a sale at the end. What do you mean? Some like the person who's coming on doesn't have something they're pitching or. Yeah, because I think I fell into the trap of everyone had a book out yeah, yeah. <laughs> and actually I kind of set up the podcast to be like, I d- you know, don't have to have a book out. You could just be a really interesting person, you know? Yeah. That, that's a really, I mean, that, that, that might be more inside baseball than we want to go into on, on the <laughs> show, but it is really interesting because the nature of, 
a lot of people that I want to talk to is they are deeply creative people or they do deep work. And which means that they they say, OK, I've released something. I'm going to do my mandatory publicity time on it and then I'm going to just disappear again into my work. And so there's a certain amount of like, OK, I, you, you want to grab it while you, you grab that person while you can. But I would say fully 50 percent of the people on our show may not have anything particularly recent. And I've, I we frustrate publishers all the time because we are booked six to nine months in advance. So they're like, we want to put somebody on. I'm like, well, if they want to come back on nine months after their book launches, I'd be I'd love to talk to them, you know. Um, and then there's certain people you you adjust for, you know, like, oh, OK, this person I've really wanted to talk to. They're in the middle of a publicity cycle. I'll go ahead and and juggle a little bit to try and make that happen, because this is somebody who's on my list of people I've really wanted to talk to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thanks for answering that. Because I just I'm so fascinated by the media world. And, and I, I got so frustrated working in magazines where everything had to have a timely hook to a really yes. timely thing. And I was like, but it might just be interesting. <laughs> so we could just do it. Um, yes. So that's the beauty of podcasts. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you based on the fact that you, what we said at the beginning about there, there being no quick fix. Do you find that your podcast does add something kind of after every interview? Do you feel like you learn something new and you apply it? Like, I feel like you're someone that's always learning. Yes and no. You know, we travel in a largely in a personal development, spiritual teaching, mindfulness, mindset, habits, um, working with thoughts and emotions world. Right. And I've been in that world in one way or the other, even if it was only in my own personal life for 25 plus years. So it's not that often that I hear something new where I'm like, oh my God, I never heard, I never thought of that before. Like that my head sort of blows up, you know, earlier on in these sort of journeys, there are those epiphanies where it does feel like, oh my God, I never thought like the world. Which is me listening. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so there's less of that. People may say things, things in a way that brings a concept alive for me in a different way. But the better analogy might be for me that um, by doing the show and reading this stuff all the time and talking to these people, it, be, it becomes the water that I swim in. And it's nourishing water to be swimming in. So it's less like I get epiphanies because I think at a certain point, the personal development journey or the spiritual journey becomes less there's a there's a turning point, I think, where it becomes less about knowledge and more about behavior, action, integration, living these things. And so so I would say for me, it's less not, you know, I'm learning something new. I might learn a new fact, a new scientific study that illuminates something a different way, a new. Um, but I don't know that I'm learning, you know, really new things, but but it, obviously I'm learning something or I wouldn't be doing it. Um, but I think it more, it just keeps me swimming in really nourishing waters. I really like that description of swimming in the nourishing waters. I guess it's interesting hearing you say that because it, I guess it depends where you are on the journey of, of a spiritual practice or of well-being in yourself, because I'm still at that stage where I listen to something and I feel like I'm going deeper and deeper into the waters and I'm not just swimming. Like, I feel like everything I listen to is just cementing it. And it's quite a fun place to be because I'm excited to get to that point. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, the, the amazing thing about the, about a journey, right. And it's such a cliche, but is that wherever you are on it is in some way, the whole of the journey, you know, at the same time, you know, it's like, yes, we've got somewhere to go and right, you know, right where we are is where, is where the action is. And something that's quite comforting about your show, I think, is sometimes you really do go quite deep on the whole, like, you'll literally ask a guest what the meaning of life is kind of thing. And what's interesting is there's so many different answers. And maybe the the lovely part of all of this is we don't ever really know. And that's the beauty of it. Yeah, I don't think we ever do know. There's a great mystery to it all. And when we can dive into that mystery, life can be very beautiful and very poignant. You know, there's a Joseph Campbell quote, I won't get it right, but he said, I don't think that people are looking for the meaning of life as much as they're looking for the experience of being alive. And I think that's, that speaks to it, you know, is how do we live in such a way that we, we have the experience of being truly meaningfully alive. Definitely. That's what I get from all of your conversations. So thank you. And lastly, I just wanted to talk to you about your coaching because you don't talk about it much on the show, but I find it really fascinating that you do this kind of one-on-one or group actual practical stuff with people. How, how is that? What's that like going on a journey with someone else, someone else's stuff? Oh, I love it. I love that. I love that work. I mean, it is, it is, um, it's, it's very rewarding. It's very beautiful. It can be very frustrating. You know, it can be, um, you know, it, it's hard. It, it can be hard to because not everybody is, you know, in the same place, ready to go, you know, move through the same, same levels, you know, so some people are more successful than other people. Some people are, you know, I got an email from a client that I've grown very close with. Um, we've worked together for a few years now, and I got an email from her this morning about something she's really sort of pulling back. And I think in a, in a, in a dangerous way. And, and by dangerous, I mean, I, there's, there are addiction issues and, you know, I, I, I was really, I was really feeling kind of down, you know, for, for a little while this morning about it. Like, what do I do? What's the right, you know, what's my role? What do I, um, but I love working with other people and leading them through this. I mean, my, my starting was in, in AA, as I, as I mentioned, and 12 step programs, when they are done right they're beautiful beautiful things you know you go into these meetings and people are sharing things that no nobody talks about you know you you just that's not generally the sort of conversations that people are having with either their friends their family anybody there's these deep beautiful conversations and then in in 12-step work there's also the idea of one alcoholic working with another so you get sponsors so you work very closely one-on-one with another person and that's really amazing and powerful work and and both people really benefit from it that's the interesting thing about the sponsor sponsee relationship in aa is that both people are benefiting so i love doing the the one-on-one coaching work i'm doing less of it in order to focus more on group coaching and group programs simply um, because a, I get, I get burnout doing it too much one-on-one and B I, if I, if I'm doing too much one-on-one, then I'm not really developing ideas and things that I can give to, to people all at once. And so the spiritual habits group program we do is, is kind of my, my current, um, you know, the thing I'm most excited about. 
that's amazing. That's so, I can imagine that experience is very, very special and you can get very, very close to people in that way. Um, wow, that is amazing. Um, I mean, do you take on new people quite a lot or is it quite sort of booked up? <laughs> um, it's, le- you know, I, I think it's less booked up than people think. Um but it's certainly not wide open either. So, you know, I mean, people are kind of moving in and out all the time. So yeah, I'm usually taking on, you know, a a new client or two at any given time um, as others are sort of wrapping up. So I'm at the point where it's sort of a steady thing, like a couple of people drop off, a couple of people come in, a couple of people drop off, a couple of people come in. Um, But like I said, I've started to limit the, the number of hours I'm doing because, um, it doesn't give me time to think about, you know, um, creating sort of the, the what's next. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's, it's, I always love doing multiple things, but there is a real knack to the balance, isn't there? <laughs> of yes. Making sure there's always enough and, and enough that you want to be doing, but not too much. And yeah. I, I've worked with a coach, um, probably slightly different coaching, but life and career coach. And what's been so amazing is realizing that there's no advice she's she there's no advice kind of based stuff in there it's all prompts in order for me to work things out by myself or not by myself it's with her but i feel like i have the epiphanies um i don't know like on my own terms if that makes sense yeah well that's a good that's a good coach then <laughs> you know yeah. i i uh yeah i mean i have um I certainly try and lead clients to their own epiphanies. And then there are times that I'll be like, well, you know, here's what I think you might, you know, I kind of, I kind of sit back and then people will be like, well, what do you think I should do? And I'm like, well, <laughs> you know, I'm not you. Yeah. It's very clever because I'm definitely someone that doesn't like being told what to do. So I love how her techniques are very clever to just kind of worm it in there. And then I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. You've got a point. Um, But thank you so much for coming on. I've just wanted to talk to you about podcasting and life and all this stuff for so long. So thanks for all the work that you do. And um, yeah, I will continue to listen to you in my ears for a long time. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this.